Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 9 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Catherine of Valois, Chapter 2, Part 1 Queen Catherine crossed the sea and landed at Harfleur on the 21st of May, 1422, escorted by the Duke of Bedford and an army of 20,000 men, destined to complete the conquest of her unhappy country. At the head of this mighty reinforcement, she traversed France in royal state. Henry left Mew, which he had just captured, as soon as he heard of the landing of his queen, and advanced with her father and mother to meet her. They met at the castle of Vincennes, where she was received by her husband and parents, as if she had been somewhat more than mortal. She had left her little infant in England, under the care of its uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. Great rejoicings were made at Paris for the arrival of the Queen of England and the birth of the heir of Henry. The royal party left Vincennes and entered Paris in great magnificence, that day being Whitsun Eve, May 30th. Queen Catherine, with her train, were lodged at the Louvre, while her mother and King Charles took up their abode at the Hotel de Saint-Paul. And on Whit Sunday, Queen Catherine sat at table at the Louvre, gloriously apparelled, having her crown on her head. The English princes and nobles were partakers with the great lords of France at this feast, each seated according to his rank, while the tables were covered with the richest viands and wines. Queen Catherine next day held a great court, and all the Parisians went to see their princess, and her lord sitting enthroned, crowned with their most precious diadems. But, continues Monstrelet, as no meat or drink was offered to the populace, they went away much discontented. For when, of old, the kings of France kept open court, much good cheer was freely given to all comers. King Charles the Sixth had once been as courteous and liberal as any of his predecessors, but now he was seated at a table with his queen, quite forsaken by his nobles, who all flocked to pay their court to his daughter and her husband, at which the common people grieved much. Catherine likewise gave great offense by having the ermines carried before her coach, as if she had been the sovereign of France. The last year's harassing warfare had greatly injured the constitution of Henry V. He was ill when his queen arrived, but he paid no regard to his failing health. He scarcely allowed himself a day's repose. But conquest, empire, and all worldly things were fast fleeting from the grasp of the warlike lord of Catherine the Fair. At Saint-Louis, he was seized with a mortal distemper. He struggled fiercely against its encroachments, for he daily expected to hear of a battle between his friend, the Duke of Burgundy, and the Dauphin, and hoped to assist his ally in person. 
He had even assumed his armor, and marched as far as Melun. But the strong hand of disease was too powerful even for the energies of his mighty mind. Sorely smitten with illness, he was obliged to give up his march, and, the malady increasing every minute, he was forced to be carried back to Senlis in a litter. He had left his queen at Senlis, but for greater security she had retired to her father's castle in the wood of Vincennes. Thither the mighty victor, mighty lord, was carried to her, helpless, on that litter which was almost a funeral couch for him. In the castle of Vincennes, near Paris, which has so often been the theatre of the destinies of France, Catherine and her mother attended the last hours of Henry V. He made a very penitential end, but was so little conscious of his blood guiltiness, that when his confessor was reading the seven psalms in the service for the dying, he stopped him when he came to the verse, Build thou the walls of Jerusalem, with an earnest protestation, that when he had completed his conquests in Europe, he always intended to undertake a crusade. When he had arranged his affairs, he asked his physicians, how long had he to live? One of them replied on his knees, that, without a miracle, he could not survive two hours at the most. Comfort my dear wife, he said to the Duke of Bedford, the most afflicted creature living. In a will he made on his deathbed, he leaves Catherine a gold scepter. He expired on the 31st of August, 1422. Henry was a learned prince, but he had the bad habit of borrowing books and never returning them. After his death, a petition was sent to the regency by the Lady Westmoreland, his relative, praying that her chronicles of Jerusalem and the expedition of Godfrey of Boulogne, borrowed of her by the late king, might be returned. The prior of Christ Church, likewise, sent in a most pitiful complaint that he had lent the works of St. Gregory to his dear lord, King Henry, who had never restored them to him, their rightful owner. In person, Henry V was tall and agile, and so swift of foot, that he could, with the aid of two of his lords, capture deer in the royal enclosures, without the assistance of dogs. His portraits possessed that distinctive character, which proves personal resemblance. His features are regular, though very strongly marked. The perceptive brow denotes the great general. The eyes are majestic and overpowering. The nose well cut, but stern in the expression of the nostril. The mouth wide, but closely pressed, and the haughty upper lip curls with no very benevolent expression. There is a great development of frontal brain in his portraits. They are all profiles, excepting that over the chantry at Westminster Abbey, which has a wen on the right side of the neck. At the time of Henry's death, his fair widow had not attained her twenty-first year. Her affection was, as the dying hero observed to his brother, most violent, but it certainly proved in the end rather evanescent. The funeral of Henry V was arranged and conducted by Queen Catherine with all the pomp of woe. His body was laid on a chariot drawn by four great horses. Just above the dead corpse, they placed a figure made of boiled leather, presenting his person as nigh as might be devised, painted curiously to the semblance of a living creature, on whose head was put an imperial diadem of gold and precious stones, on its body a purple robe furred with ermine, in the right hand a scepter royal, 
in the left an orb of gold with a cross fixed thereon and thus adorned was this figure laid in a bed on the same chariot with the visage uncovered towards the heavens and the coverture of this bed was of red beaten with gold and besides when the body should pass through any good town a canopy of marvellous value was borne over it by men of great worship in this manner he was accompanied by the king of scots as chief mourner and by all the princes lords and knights of his house in vestures of deep mourning at a distance from the corpse of about two english miles followed the widow queen catherine right honourably accompanied the body rested at the church of st ophian in abbeville where masses were sung by the queen's orders for the repose of henry's soul from the dawn of morning till the close of night the procession moved through abbeville with increased pomp the duke of exeter the earl of march sir louis robsart the queen's knights and many nobles bore the banners of the saints the hatchments were carried by twelve renowned captains and around the buyer car rode four hundred men-at-arms in black armor their horses barbed black their lances held with the points downwards a great company clothed in white bearing wax torches lighted encompassed the procession the queen with a mighty retinue came after a mile's distance thus she passed keeping her husband's corpse in view through hesden montreux and boulogne till they came to calais where on the twelfth of october the privy council had ordered vessels to meet the queen with ladies to attend her when the queen after landing at dover with the royal corpse approached london she was met by fifteen bishops in their pontifical habits and by many abbots in their mitres and vestments with a vast crowd of priests and people the priests chanted all the way from blackheath and through the streets of the city hymns for their dead king a general and picturesque illumination was effected by each householder standing at his door with a torch in his hand the princes of the royal family rode in mournful postures next the funeral car the grief of the young queen greatly edified the people and they were still more impressed by the barbarian magnificence of the tomb she raised to the memory of their royal hero on which a latin inscription expressed that it was raised by his queen catherine the famous silver-plated statue with the head of solid silver gilt was placed on the tomb of henry v at the expense of his widow directly after the obsequies of her husband catherine retired to windsor castle to embrace her babe and pass the first weeks of her widowhood her little child was eight months old on the day of his warlike father's death when the parliament met she removed to london and passed through the city on a moving throne drawn by white horses and surrounded by all the princes and nobles of england the infant king was seated on her lap and those pretty hands says one of our quaint chroniclers which could not yet feed himself were made capable of wielding a sceptre and he who was beholden to nurses for milk did distribute sustenance to the law and justice of his nation the queen with her infant on her knee was enthroned among the lords whom by the chancellor the little king saluted and spoke to them at large his mind by means of another's tongue the king conducted himself with extraordinary quietness and gravity considering he had not yet attained the age of twelve months 
Henry did not always behave so orderly as that curious annal, the London Chronicle, thus bears grave testimony. This year, 1423, upon Saturday, the 13th of November, the king and his mother removed from Windsor to hold a parliament in London. At night, the king and his mother, the queen, lodged at Staines, and upon the morrow, being Sunday, the king being borne towards his mother's car, he shrieked, he cried, he sprang, and would be carried no further. Wherefore they bore him again to the inn, and there he abode the Sunday all day. The chronicler certainly means to insinuate that all this violence was because the royal babe, by a holy instinct, would not break the Sabbath by traveling, and therefore made this notable resistance by shrieking and kicking when he was carried to his mother's car. In all probability, he had been well amused at the inn at Staines and did not wish to leave it. On the Monday, continues the chronicler of London, he was born to his mother's car or chair, he being then glad and merry of cheer, and so they came to Kingston and rested that night. On the Tuesday, Queen Catherine brought him to Kennington. On Wednesday, he came to London, and with glad semblance and merry cheer on his mother's barm, lap, in the car, rode through London to Westminster, and on the morrow was so brought into Parliament. Catherine left Westminster with her infant, and retired to Waltham Palace, November 26th, and from thence to Hertford, where she kept her Christmas with her friend, James I of Scotland, whom she had the pleasure of seeing united, at St. Mary's Southwark, soon after, to the lady he passionately loved, and whose happiness she had kindly promoted. Catherine's dower was not settled by Act of Parliament until the second year of her infant's reign. She appears to have been put in possession of all the ancient dower palaces, belonging to the queens of England, with the exception of Havering Bower and Langley, where resided the queen dowager, widow of Henry the Fourth. In the third year of the reign of Henry the Sixth, it was granted to his dearest mother, Catherine, all that inn or hospitium in the city of London, where his dear cousin, the Earl of March, lately deceased, used to reside, and that she may have possession of it during the minority of his dear cousin, Richard, Duke of York, on condition she keeps in good repair all the buildings and gardens, and is at all charges concerning them. There is reason to suppose that this was Baynard's castle. This year, Catherine and her mother, Isabeau of Bavaria, were entreated on the part of England and France, to act as mediatrices between Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and Philip, Duke of Burgundy, who had challenged each other to mortal combat. Duke Humphrey insisted on retaining, as his wife, Jacqueline, the heiress of Holland, who had formally thrown herself on Catherine's protection. Catherine, being the intimate friend of all the parties, succeeded in preventing the duel. Two days before the opening of Parliament in 1425, Catherine entered the city in a chair of state, with her child sitting on her knee. When they arrived at the west door of St. Paul's Cathedral, the Duke Protector lifted the infant king from his chair, and set him on his feet, and then, with the Duke of Exeter, led him between them, up the stairs going into the choir, from whence the royal infant was carried to the high altar, where he kneeled for a time, a traverse having been prepared for him. It is expressly said that he looked gravely and sadly about him. 
and then he was borne into the churchyard, and there set upon a fair courser, to the infinite delight of the people, and so conveyed, through Cheapside to St. George's Bar, to his own manor of Kennington. At Kennington Palace, Catherine and her royal son reposed till the 30th of April, when they set out in a grand procession through the city to Westminster Palace. The little king was held on a great white horse, and the people flocked in multitudes to see him, declaring he had the features of his father, and loading him with blessings. Being come to the palace, Catherine seated herself on the throne in the white hall, where the house of the lords was held, with the infant sovereign on her lap. Our warlike barons were not a little embarrassed by the mutations of this world, which had snatched from them a leader of singular energies, both as monarch and warrior, and, placing a little babe at their head, made them directors of a nursery. The chivalric Earl of Warwick had the guardianship of the king's person at a very early age, a fact illustrated by a beautiful contemporary drawing in the pictorial history of the Earl. He is represented holding the king, a most lovely infant of fourteen months, in his arms, while he is showing him to the peers in Parliament. One of the lords is presenting the infant monarch with the orb. The royal babe is curiously surveying it, and with an arch look, gently placing one dimpled hand upon the symbol of sovereignty, seems doubtful whether it is to be treated with reverence, or chucked, like a common ball, into the midst of the august assembly. Another representation of the Earl of Warwick gives us an idea of the costume of royal infants in the Middle Ages. For the limners of that age drew what they saw before them and invented nothing. Warwick is delineated in the ruse roll, holding his royal charge on his arm. The babe is about 18 months old. He is attired in a little crimson velvet gown and has on his head a velvet cap, turned up with a miniature crown, Moreover, he holds a toy scepter in his baby hand, which he looks much inclined to whisk about the head of the stout earl, who is so amiably performing the office of a nursery maid. It is to be presumed that the earl carried the little king on all state occasions, while his governess, Dame Alice Bottelaire, and his nurse, Joan Astley, had possession of him in his hours of retirement. In a very naively worded document, the Privy Council writing as if the king were giving his directions to his governess himself, requests Dame Alice, from time to time, reasonably to chastise us, as the case may require, without being held accountable or molested for the same at any future time. The well-beloved Dame Alice, being a very wise and expert person, is to teach us courtesy and nurture good manners, and many things convenient to our royal person to learn. After these arrangements were effected, Catherine the Fair retires behind a cloud so mysterious that for thirteen years of her life we have no public document which tells of her actions, and the biographer is forced to wander in search of particulars into the pleasant but uncertain regions of tradition and private anecdote. Deep obscurity hangs over the birth and origin of Catherine's second husband, Owen Tudor, some historians declare that the father of Owen was a brewer at Beaumarie. Nevertheless, he drew his line from a prince of North Wales called Theodore, which, pronounced according to the Saxon tongue, was corrupted into Tudor, and even to the meaner sound of Titter. There is an ancient house in the county of Anglesey, 
called Glengani, still pointed out as the residence of Owen Tudor, and the Welsh say that he possessed their property to the amount of three thousand pounds per annum. But this wealthy heritage is by no means consistent with the assertion of his accurate countryman, Pennant, who has proved that Meredith, the father of Owen, was the fourth son of a younger son of the line of Tudor, and that he filled no higher office than that of Scudifer, or shield-bearer, to a bishop of Bangor. When in this office, Meredith, either by design or accident, killed a man, and being outlawed, fled with his wife to the fastness of Snowdown, where Owen Glendower upheld the banner of defiance against the house of Lancaster. If young Owen were not born in this stronghold of freedom, he was probably baptized there, for a tradition declares that he was godson to the great chief Glendower. He was thus brought up from his cradle as a hardy predatory soldier. The next fact regarding Owen is that he certainly belonged to the brave Welsh band with whom Henry V most prudently entered into amicable terms on the death of the warlike Glendower. These hardy warriors, it is well known, under the command of Davy the One-Eyed, did good service at Agincourt. Tradition says that young Owen Tudor aided his countrymen in repelling the fiery charge of Alençon, and that Henry V made him, for his bravery, one of the squires of his body, hence his title of armiger. There is great reason to suppose that the brave and handsome Owen fought only as a common soldier in the Welsh band, but when once he had received the preferment of squire of the body to Henry V, he certainly continued the same office about the person of the infant king, and hence his acquaintance with the queen mother. In this station, Owen Tudor is next found keeping guard on the infant king and his mother at Windsor Castle, and very soon after the death of Henry V, it appears the handsome Welsh soldier attracted the attention of the royal widow of England. Owen did not certainly possess forty pounds per annum at this time. If he had, he must have taken up his knighthood. While Owen was on guard at Windsor, on some festival, he was required to dance before the queen, and, making too elaborate a pirouette, he was not able to recover his balance, but fell into the queen's lap, as she sat upon a low seat, with all her ladies about her. The queen's manner of excusing this awkwardness gave her ladies the first suspicion that she was not entirely insensible to the attractions of the brave Welshman. As her passion increased, and she indulged herself in greater intimacy with the object of it, those of her ladies, who could take the liberty, remonstrated with the queen, and represented how much she lowered herself by paying any attention to a person, who, though possessing some personal accomplishments and advantages, had no princely nor even gentle alliances, but belonged to a barbarous clan of savages, reckoned inferior to the lowest English yeoman. Upon which the queen declared, that being a Frenchwoman, she had not been aware that there was any difference of race in the British island. Afterwards, communicating these strictures to her lover, he held forth very eloquently concerning his high-born kin and princely descent, and the queen requested him to introduce some of his princely relatives at her court at Windsor Castle, whereupon, says Sir John Wynne, he brought into her presence John ap Meredith and Howell ap Llewellyn, his near cousins, men of the goodliest stature and personage, but wholly destitute of bringing up and nurture, education. 
for when the queen had spoken to them in diverse languages, and they were not able to answer her, she said, they were the goodliest dumb creatures she ever saw, a proof that Catherine knew several languages, but had no skill in Welsh. End of section 9 Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.